Let's, uh, let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the wonderful day that we have again today to come together and worship, to fellowship together. Uh, we thank you for this time that we have. Help us uh, as we um, examine uh, another area of, of thinking biblically in a, our worldview. Uh, as we uh, examine the area of science, help us to, uh, to navigate through this uh, sometimes challenging area. So help us today, and again, thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we're going to hit science today, a, a scriptural view, a biblical worldview of, of science, which uh, can be kind of a, a, a daunting task. Uh, I think our normal thought of is when we think of science, we probably don't naturally put science and scripture together. Matter of fact, most people kind of tend to want to separate those two and uh, view them as, as uh, uh, especially science challenging scripture. So we want to kind of put that to, to rest as much as we can and, and see how the, how the two can harmonize with each other instead of being at odds with each other as we look at uh, a scriptural view of science. I'm going to be um, taking this information from, again, the, the book Think Biblically uh, that was published uh, from the Master's College and written by uh, various professors from the college. This is uh, a chapter written by Dr. Taylor Jones. And there may be some of you who had Dr. Jones as a teacher, especially if you taught ke- uh, t- uh, took chemistry or I'm not sure what other classes he might have taught besides chemistry. Did anybody here happen to have Dr. Jones as a teacher? Okay, I see a couple of hands up there. Was it uh, what class did you have Dr. Jones in, Emily Beth? It was a science class, right? <laughs> what did Karen have? Foundations of science. That was it. Okay. And uh, I don't see Tracy here, but Tracy had uh, uh, probably chemistry, I, I, I suspect, and organic chemistry. And is that right? There's Ricardo. And uh, did you have Dr. Jones for a class? Foundations. Foundations, all right. And he passed away a little over a year ago, um, I think somewhat unexpectedly. And so we're, um, we're, I know that uh, that was a sad a thing to uh, to hear about, but I know that uh, those that had him as a teacher really, really uh, appreciated him and, and liked him a, uh, a lot. And I appreciated getting into his mind a little bit as, as uh, I studied this chapter that he wrote um, in the book that we're going through. Uh, as we uh, we've we've been covering several different areas already. We've looked at a, uh, just what the biblical what a biblical mindset is in general. We've examined sin, we've examined creation, a worldview of creation, a biblical worldview that is. We've uh, looked at a biblical worldview of the nations, how God views the nations, and today we're going to be looking at science. As, um, as I was reading and, and thinking about, about this, uh, I myself being a math teacher, and I know that math is uh, some question if math is a science, in the pure sense of science, but it's definitely a, the language of science, if anything. There are some that might not uh, put it in a category of a, of a true science, but it's definitely the, the, the language that scientists uh, communicate with. And so I, I'll kind of 
sort of consider myself a scientist in that sense, uh, since I'm a math guy. As, as, but as, as I was studying and, and thinking about these things, there was a, a, a phrase came across um, my, um, my experience <laughs> in the last uh, few weeks and, and days. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we had Teacher Appreciation Week, and I got a thank you note from the student body um, officers, and, and the note read, Thank you for being the best version of you. Thank you for being the best version of you. And my immediate thought was, what does that mean? <laughs> Thank you for being the best version of you. What does that mean? <laughs> and I kind of thought that, are they saying, well, bless your heart, you're doing the best you can. <laughs> you, know, you know, hang in there, bless your heart. <laughs> And so I thought, is this some kind of a back, backhanded dig <laughs> somehow? And so I, I, talked to, um, I talked to some of my uh, students that I uh, have a closer trusting relationship with and, uh, and to ask their take on this, what do you think about this? You know, it, it sounds kind of weird. And, and I shared some of my concerns and they said, oh, no, don't worry. That's, it's a good thing. This just means they they appreciate you. They think you're doing a good job. Uh, it's it's uh, it's something that um, is a common phrase these days. So you know you're safe. Don't worry. I said okay. Just seems weird to me. <laughs> and uh, apparently this phrase is popular at this point. Uh, at our graduation last Friday evening, just a couple of days ago, the keynote speaker that was his main point. His main point was that the students should, would, should strive to be the best version of themselves. That, that's the point that he drove home over and over and over again. And um, uh, I, I guess the, the message was, be yourself and do a really, really good job at being yourself, whatever that means. <laughs> but but, but uh, do that. He, this, uh, uh, our speaker was a... Um, uh, he had graduated four years. He was one of our... He was our in our first graduating class at our school. We have a relatively new school. And he just graduated from, from college, and he's now studying to be a, a Catholic priest. And I, I kept wondering if he would bring home a standard of measure that, we, that a person would measure themselves against in terms of be, uh, <laughs> try to be the best version of you. But what's the standard of measure? Which, of course, for us, our view is... Our standard of measure is Jesus Christ. And I kind of wondered if he would ever get around to that. Never did. <laughs> it was just be the best version of you. Well, um, in the world's eyes, um, you have no one to answer to then but yourself. Be the best version of you. You are your own standard. Of course, the, the biblical view is that our human nature, ourselves, we are in a fallen state that leads to eternal death. We require reconciliation to, uh, to the Lord, uh, to God, through the blood of Jesus Christ. Uh, the world says, be the best version of you. You answer to no one but yourself. But Scripture says, have the mind of Christ. Be an imitator of the Lord. He says, be perfect, for I am perfect. 
That is our standard, not looking within ourselves. Um, So the world places confidence in themselves, but as Christians, our confidence is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we examine the area of science, and we examine where do we place our confidence in, in science or in Scripture, uh, we, we kind of get that same dichotomy of, in this phrase, be the best version of yourself. Secular science, that's kind of where it's at. Do the best you can with what you've got. But what's the truth? What is the absolute truth? And uh, that's, that, there's the rub, is where's the absolute truth? Scripture is absolute truth. Science can whittle away at it and chisel away at it and get close to the truth. But in terms of getting the absolute truth, that's a tough nut to crack, and that's what we want to examine today as we study a scriptural view of science. Well, science is all around us. I kind of joke about that with math when I teach math. I tell the kids, math is all around you, and they kind of get scared, like, no, 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 I don't want that to happen. (laughs) But science is all around us also. Um, uh, It really can't be, um, uh, in, in his book, in his chapter, Dr. Jones, in terms of what science produces, it really can't be, cannot be overestimated, uh, the, the science uh, that is around us and the impact of science in our lives. And you might find that a little strong, that, well, it's not that big a deal, but it is. I mean, you could, anything that you're touching right now probably has some, not probably, does have some science involved in it in terms of the chemistry and, the, and the, the engineering and building of whatever you happen to be sitting on or, or, uh, or sitting in or wearing or whatever, there's a lot of science involved in just about anything that we touch. Whether we like it or not, there's science that might be thousands of years old and it might be just a few years old. Science is all around us, and we take it for granted. Uh, but science is a big deal. We are impacted in science in all sorts of ways. And most people view science, even though most people might be a little bit scared of science, uh, it's a, it is a tough subject uh, for many of us, but most people view science as complete, trustworthy, um, something that is very necessary in our lives. There's a generally healthy respect for science. Um, there are some areas of science that have undergone intense scrutiny and held up to that scrutiny. While there are other areas that are uh, areas of science that rest on pretty weak foundations, and yet in in spite of those weak foundations, uh, respect is still commanded. As we study the area of science, though, uh, we also want to remember that in terms of a worldview, in this case a worldview with respect to science, um, we are seeking a correct worldview. What is the truth? And that seems like it, uh, like a... Uh, an obvious statement that our worldview must be correct. It must reflect the way the world really is. It's kind of obvious. But um, the fact of the matter is, so many people have a worldview that is not correct. It's totally built on opinion and what they think is true and not what really is true. What does the reality of the world really show us how can we really get how can we really have science explain to us the reality of the world truth 
can science really do that, get to the absolute truth? Uh, there are lots and lots of incorrect worldviews that are interesting. Uh, it doesn't, you know, you, you, I don't know about you, but I'm almost afraid to turn on my computer anymore because, you know, the, the first thing, you know, if you have your opening home homepage be something like Yahoo or, you know, whatever, or Google or something, you immediately have this, it's, it's kind of like at the supermarket and you're standing in line and you see all those, the National Enquirer and whatever all those other magazines are that are just weird stuff. And whenever you turn on the computer and, and whatever your home screen is, just weird stuff, right? Just like, this is crazy. <laughs> and and it, it, it's like, really? <laughs> and incorrect worldviews that are probably sort of, in a way... I guess interesting or fascinating or fun or something. <laughs> Sometimes they may be thought-provoking, but mostly they're just weird and wrong, <laughs> some of the things that, uh, that we see. But what we, um, they have little practical use, little practical use. Uh, uh, what we really want to strive for is, in, in a correct worldview, we want to find out what's true. What is the truth? And, of course, that's what science is looking for, is what is the truth. An example of, of this would be a, a map. Now, a lot of you have a, a built-in GPS in your, in your car. Even that can be fallible, I assume. Is that true? <laughs> and some of you are saying, absolutely. I don't have, I don't have a GPS in my car, but I, have, uh, I do have, uh, uh, I have resorted to Google Maps or whatever the computerized maps might be once in a while. And, I've no, and sometimes they're wrong. Or if you have a map that you pull out of your desk drawer, you know, I'm okay, I'm gonna use it, and you find out it's five years old, and it's wrong. And it's, it's not going to take you to where you need to be. Uh, a map is only is as good as its accuracy. And uh, if it's incorrect, then you don't get to where you're going to go. <laughs> Same thing with an incorrect worldview. If the worldview that we have is incorrect, it will, uh, we will get lost <laughs> in trying to navigate through the world. An incorrect worldview produces lost people. And so as Christians, we want to uh, stay close to the truth of Scripture, the absolute truth of Scripture and in terms of our topic today, science. Science is after the truth. And uh, so if you look at those two things then, science versus Scripture, Scripture is truth. I, don't, I think all of us in this room have no problem with that statement, that Scripture is truth with a capital T. Um, we've, we've had enough teaching to... Uh, to not fight that at all. Scripture is truth with a capital T. What does science do? Science seeks to find truth. What is the truth in which the in which the in, in the way that the world operates? So they're they're after the same thing. Science and science is after the truth. How can these two be reconciled, though? Since there is kind of a uh, we know that there's a gap between these two. And we'll talk about that gap as we continue. Well, Dr. Jones suggests that a Christian's worldview contains five clusters of belief for the, for the Christian. First, God, theology, the world, our, how we view the world through, uh, through theology. Second, ultimate reality, which would be the physical world. 
Number three would be knowledge or epistemology. Four would be ethics, axiology. And five, human nature or anthropology. The third item there, knowledge or epistemology, that's where science fits in. Because the word science actually can be defined as the state of knowing or knowledge. Science can be equated with knowledge. Science is also uh, the, uh, the idea of putting knowledge into a structured system. Um, my daughter Tracy is a, is a biology teacher, life science, and I know that in biology they have all sorts of classifications and, you know, the, the phylums and the families and the thises and the that and all those things, right? And, and you come up with some sort of a mnemonic to remember all those things, right? Yeah. And, and so there's structure. In science, we try to structure things. Uh, we structure that knowledge. And we, we try to also then obtain general truth, general truth, uh, which will hopefully even become a law, an absolute truth, basically. Uh, and, and science generally concerns itself with the physical world. And in, in, in obtaining these, uh, these general laws, we have then this, gener- this direct link with science of truth. Science and truth definitely have a close link. And so it, it's perfectly um, acceptable and, and uh, a good thing and a logical thing to examine Scripture and science together since they're both after truth. And Scripture is truth. Well, science arrives at what it considers truth. And I'll say scientific truth. I'm going to use... Sci- whenever, I say, whenever I'm talking about scientific truth, I'm using a small letter T... But when I talk about biblical truth, I'm thinking capital letter T. So you'll have to try to do that. Of course, then you'll have to be wondering, okay, did he mean scientific truth? Or try not, it's not a big deal. <laughs> the limit, but science is limited. Science is limited in terms of seeking out what it would consider truth. And as we go through the scientific method, uh, you'll, we will see that. Uh, there is a, a weak length a weak link in the scientific method. Well, in science, there are some areas of study that are definitely more reliable than others. There are the hard sciences and there are the soft sciences. Now, the hard sciences would be those sciences such as chemistry and physics, for example. Uh, Definitely, if you consider math a science, it would definitely be probably the hardest of the science. Now, when I say a hard science, I don't mean difficult. I don't mean a difficult science, although some people might argue with me and say, well, those are difficult subjects. (laughs) As opposed to the soft sciences, the soft sciences would be things like sociology and anthropology. Those are the soft sciences. So what's the difference between the hard sciences and the soft sciences? Well, uh, the difference is... um, the amount of confidence that you can put in a conclusion based on uh, reproducibility. The whole idea in science is can you reproduce an event over and over and over and over again? What's the reproducibility? Um, Basically, I'll, I'll use a mathematical term. What's the reproducibility ratio or quotient? Is there a high ratio? Is it, is it, is it nearing 100% where you could perform an experiment over and over and over and over again and see the same result 
you can change and tweak the conditions a little bit and still see the same result. Tweak it a little bit more and see the same result. Tweak it a little bit more and see the same result. Can you do that over and over and over and over again? You can do that in chemistry. You can do that in physics. You can do that in the hard sciences. It's easy to to have reproducibility of an experiment and notice if there's a change in, in, in what's happening. In the soft sciences, such as sociology and anthropology, studying, of, of, uh, studying man, basically, that's difficult. That's difficult. To, reproducibility is very difficult. For example, what if we wanted to study the effects of education on an individual? Well, suppose I decide on, a, I choose a subject. Uh, I will choose Ricardo. And I want to, ch- and I, and I want to generate some sort of a, a, a theory or a hypothesis on, on how education affects him. And so we, uh, we send him to a public school. We send him to, uh, uh, to, to preschool. And then we send him to a public school from K-12. And then we send him to a public uh, university. And, uh, and we see how, he, how he's doing after that. And then we put him in a time machine, and so he's back to those, uh, and, he, we, and, 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 and he, he's back to uh, three or four years old, and this time we don't put him in preschool. But we do everything else the same. The only difference is preschool, so we can see the result, if there is a result. Well, the problem is, of course, can we really do that? No. <laughs> We can't do that. Reproducibility can't be done in those soft sciences. We can study groups of people, and we can study lots of statistics, but in terms of performing a similar experiment on the same individual over and over and over again, it's impossible. It can't be done. That's why it's a soft science. The conclusions are not nearly as reliable as they would be in the hard sciences, where we can perform the same experiment over and over and over and over again. And so we have these two areas of science, the soft sciences and the, and the hard sciences. Well, how science functions, um, or the logic of science, is important to understand getting at the truthfulness of science in terms of what is true. Uh, the main focus of science is usually what are you studying, what's the subject, uh, what are we doing in particular? But it's also useful to, to look at how, the how of, of, of the study, the how of a scientific study. There's what is being studied. That's usually what we think of. What, what are we doing here? But how are we doing it? And that's where the scientific method comes in. So I want to spend a few minutes just talking about the scientific method for just a little bit. Now, Dr. Jones, in his chapter, used the example of a flat tire in explaining the scientific method. And basically, um, the scientific method, I'll, I'll give you the quick, short explanation of the scientific method. It is common sense. That's the scientific method. Use common sense. That's tough for me. I'll tell you that right now. I learned a long time ago that I have, I'm sometimes lacking in the common sense uh, area. But... Um, <laughs> But we persevere. <laughs> but, uh, uh, but that's generally the scientific method, common sense. Now, Dr. Jones uses the example of a flat tire. He, um, 
he walks out. And I, don't, I, don't, I kind of get the feeling that this actually happened uh, to him. And I don't know if, if he ever shared a story about a flat tire with any of his students. But uh, he, he walks out to his car one day, and he has brand new tires on the car. And he notices that, hmm, that car is not, uh, it's not sitting quite level. It looks like one corner seems to be lower than another. Hmm, that's strange. Looks around and notices that... Uh, the bottom of the tire seems to be parallel with the ground rather than rounded like on the top. And so he makes these observations. That's the first step in the scientific method is you make an observation. And he made an observation that his, his car was not sitting straight. Uh, the tire seemed to be uh, different on the bottom than it was on the top. And then he made, uh, from this observation, he made an interpretation. That's the second step in the scientific method is to interpret uh, a, uh, an observation. His interpretation was the tire is flat. Okay? That interpretation could also be thought of as a fact. From the observation, he developed some fact. And so that, those are the first two steps in the scientific method. You make an observation, and then you, uh, you come up with some fact based on that, or some interpretation, which you would call a fact. Now, the problem, uh, there's an immediate problem with, with this uh, in the scientific method, in that the, the fact might be incorrect. <laughs> it might, you might not have the correct uh, interpretation. Uh, for example, in Matthew 12, 24, uh, the Pharisees attributed Jesus' miracles to Beelzebub, to Satan, basically, to a demon, uh, rather than that he was the embodiment of God. And so they made an incorrect observation. They saw Jesus performing miracles and immediately may, uh, uh, latched on to the interpretation, this is from a demon. <laughs> this is not from, uh, from God. Incorrect fact, incorrect interpretation. So one of the problems with uh, uh, even the second step in the scientific method is that, you know what, your interpretation might not be correct. Uh, in terms of, that's why reproducibility is a big deal. Repetition is a big deal. So that you can see, okay, what happens the next time around? What happens the next time around? What happens the next time around? So reproducibility is important. It can reveal mistakes that might have been made in those observations. Well, after the observation and a fact is established, next comes a, a hypothesis. A hypothesis. What caused this flat to happen? Well, what would cause a flat tire? Well, you've gone through this. All of us have gone through this, right? What causes a flat tire? A nail or screw. That would be one thing. A defective tire. And then, of course, especially if you happen to be a teacher and your car happens to be sitting in the school parking lot all the time, there is always the possibility that maybe a disgruntled student decided to let the air out of your tire. <laughs> There's that. Those are probably the, the three most obvious hypotheses that we would set forth. A nail, a defective tire, or a vindictive student. And so we, uh, that's the third step in the, in, the, uh, uh, in the scientific method is we make a hypothesis of why this happened. Well, then we have some experimentation. We start trying to figure out, okay, why is this? Do you see why the, you see this is just really common sense? You do, anybody who's had a flat tire, you've gone through the scientific method. You've done this. <laughs> And so then you, uh, you start experimenting. You start looking at the tire. You look for the nail. You look for that screw that's in the tire. You look for a defect. You look for something. 
and, and you, uh, you, you experiment. Uh, Dr. Jones did that, couldn't find anything, took it to the tire shop. The tire guy did the same thing, couldn't find anything. And so that led to a theory. The theory was vindictive student. Flat tire caused by vindictive student. And so because there was no, no sign of any kind of a, a puncture, no sign of any kind of defect, must have been a defective, uh, must have been a vindictive student. So we have, uh, so we have this theory. Well, if you have a theory, you have to go back to the experimentation mode. You have to then test that. Let's test this theory. Uh, testing a theory is basically like testing the hypothesis. And so we do that. We test the hypothesis. We test the theory now that flat tire caused by vindictive student. The way, they, the way they did this in the tire shop, and you've probably seen this done, they put the tire under pressure and put it in a big tank of water to see if there are any air bubbles. And so they did that. They put the tire in the tank and submerged it. The tire was pressurized. And guess what? Air bubbles. Air bubbles. That meant the theory was wrong. The theory was wrong. There actually was a puncture in the tire, after all, that couldn't be seen. And on further inspection, on further review, if you're a football fan, upon further review, they, they found a little tiny piece of sheet metal embedded in, the, in between the, in the recesses, in between the, the, the bigger treads that was, had caused this. And so this then led the, uh, to the scenario that flat tire is caused by a small piece of sheet metal. Now, if this, let's get back to reproducibility, if this was, repro- if, if this was produced over and over and over again, flat tire, piece of sheet metal, flat tire, piece of sheet metal, flat tire, piece of sheet metal, you'd probably say, that guy's neat. <laughs> Somebody's goofing around with the sheet metal with this guy. But if that happened over and over and over again, that would then lead us to the last stage of the scientific method, and that is law. When you see the same thing reproduced over and over and over again, then that then is what we would say, you know what, this is just, this is law, this is truth. You get a flat tire, it was caused by a piece of sheet metal. Now, is that really true? No, <laughs> we all know that, that that particular scenario is kind of silly. It's not really true um, in this case, but that does give us a little insight into what we would then call a law when we see that uh, under reproducibility something happens over and over and over again. There's no known or anticipated exception. We don't anticipate that it's ever going to change. It's always going to be that way. So a law uh, is that. It's, uh, there's no known or anticipated exception. Few theories, few theories reach the status of law. Now, that's, that's a big deal. If science is looking for truth with a capital T, can it really get there if most theories of science never really achieve law status? Most don't. There are really very few laws in science with a capital L and a capital T. 
And even those, we might use a small letter T. One of those would be some of these laws that would, we would say are definite, uh, we, we have complete confidence in, would be the law of thermodynamics. And everybody's, oh yes, good, we get to talk about the law of ther- ther- thermodynamics. Thank you for bringing that up. Does anybody know what I'm talking about when I say the law of ther- ther- thermodynamics? So we have a few hands that are, that are up there. And um, so the law of, th- there are two biggies in the law of, thermodynamics. One would be conservation of energy. Okay? It's a closed system. Energy cannot be created. It cannot be uncreated. What do you call uncreated? Destroyed. <laughs> okay? And then the other, uh, another part of uh, a thermodynamics is entropy. Everything is uh, headed towards decay. Uh, the world is in a state of decay. And so we have those laws. Uh, science says, you know what? That's truth. We don't see any, any evidence that anything is any different than that. Conservation of energy and, entro- and entropy. And then, of course, the law of gravity. Uh, that's why you are pinned to your seat right now, is gravity is, hold- is holding you down. It's holding you down at a constant acceleration of 9.8 meters per second squared. 9.8, you, you are traveling, your body is traveling at a velocity downward at 9.8 meters a second every second. That's how fast you're, you're, you're being held fast to your chair right now at 9.8 meters a second. That's how fast you're being held. Can you feel it? <laughs> Those of you that don't like the metric system, that's 32 feet per second. Per second. Okay? <laughs> 32 feet per second each second. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, these laws have been examined frequently. Everybody's confident that this is going to be true. But the pro- here's the problem with, with science in terms of truth. Too often science, w- scientists will assign the same label of truth to an experiment that's only at the theory stage. They will assign the label of law to an experiment that really is only at the theory or hypothesis stage and has not reached the level of truth in terms of being a law, where you can see that happen over and over and over again. And there's confidence that there is no anticipated exception. There are often could-be exceptions, and yet science too often calls that a law when it's in fact still a theory and it's not really a law and they mix those two reasonable skepticism should uh, always be attached to theories and and science uh, is not always willing uh, to abandon a theory in the face of data that's even incompatible with that theory and of course you can probably uh, guess what I'm thinking about as I say that and that would be evolution Uh, science doesn't always want to or are they willing to abandon a theory, even in spite of data that says, you know what, that doesn't seem right. It doesn't, doesn't fit with what, uh, what your theory is. Well, the bottom line is it's difficult for science to determine absolute truth. It is very difficult to determine truth with a capital T, to determine what would really be a law rather than just a theory. That's very difficult. Uh, science can't produce a worldview that is completely reliable. 
science has a difficult standard to, 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 try to, uh, uh, to try to live up to. But what is our standard of truth? Of course, our standard of truth is the Bible. That's where we get a, a truly correct worldview. How does a person test a worldview in terms of its correctness? Uh, in, in my own example that I gave earlier, uh, the, uh, I could be my own standard. I can make my own truth. I'm the, uh, I'm the best version of me. <laughs> That's my truth. <laughs> Uh, and I can and I can just make up what and too often that's what people do is they just make up their own truths. But uh, the truth with a capital T, we have to use a body of knowledge um, that is absolute. And of course, that is the Bible. Um, in terms of seeking out this truth, we can naturally think of the question that Pilate asked several thousand years ago as he was. Uh, the trial of Jesus, one of the trials, and that is, he asked, what is truth? What is truth? And uh, what is the accurate, unchanging reflection of the things, of the way things really are in the world? And the answer is in the Bible, of course. Only the Word of God is completely reliable um, as truth with a capital T. Um, we know that in the world that would be completely rejected to say that the only absolute truth is scripture uh, would be uh, completely rejected, would be laughed at uh, as it has been through the centuries. Um, the, the nearly universal opinion today um, is that truth is what a person acknowledges it to be. That's the worldview. What's truth? Whatever a person says is truth. Uh, just like my little thing. I'm the best version of me. That's my truth, <laughs> uh, which apparently in the world is okay. But, uh, of course, when it comes to absolute truth, and let's just use uh, gravity, for uh, let's say gravity is an absolute truth, I can deny the law of gravity, but that doesn't mean that it's not going to continue to hold me fast to my seat. <laughs> It's still, it's still true whether I say that it's whether I think whether I tell you it's true or not. It's still uh, uh, if I say it's false, it doesn't matter what I think. Well, gravity exists, but uh, too often uh, people think that well, this is what I think. This is what I think should happen. This is the way the world is because I like you know I th- I think I've got a pretty good opinion, and a lot of other people say so too. Since so many other people believe this, it must be true. And we, we, we go to the uh, public opinion, the form of public opinion, to decide what's true or not. Uh, well, several years ago, an example of this would be, um, if, you're, if you're older like me, there was a bumper sticker that uh, a lot of Christians had on their, their car. The bumper sticker said, God said it, I believe it. That settles it. Remember that? Does, is anybody brave enough to say that they actually had that on their car? Okay. <laughs> God said it. I believe it. That settled. Uh, the implication was supposed to be a declaration of the authority of Scripture. That Scripture is true. Um, but what it's really saying is that there's some harmony between God's view of Scripture and the car owner's view of Scripture. If you notice the order, God said it, I believe it. 
And now that settles it. (laughs) Which is really faulty. That is faulty logic. It's flawed. It's wrong. It basically is saying, well, God said it, and I'm going to ratify that because I believe it. And so that settles it. As long as God says it's that way, and by the way, I say it's that way also, then that settles it. It has been ratified by me, and so it's okay. Popular opinion. What the, of course, what we say, what the person said, has nothing to do with the truth of Scripture. So what the bumper should have said was, God said it, that settles it. And then in little parentheses somewhere, something, and it just so happens that I believe it. <laughs> but God said it, that settles it, done. That, that's the absolute truth. That's absolute confidence in the truth of Scripture. And so God said it, that, that confirms it. The issue is the trustworthiness and the authority of the author, God. God is infallible. Man is fallible. Man cannot stand side by side with God in determining truth. Only God determines absolute truth. Well, the unbeliever, of course, will not accept that. The unbeliever would not accept God's authority. In, in John 3, verses 19 and 20, uh, we read this, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works be exposed. Nobody wants their, their true false works exposed, and yet they're not willing to, uh, uh, to look at the truth of Scripture. Many scientists put their confidence in man's accomplishments and knowledge, and that obstructs their knowledge of, of God then. Um, the view has long been held that the Bible is only true as long as it comes to spiritual matters. As long as we're talking about spiritual matters, okay, I'll be okay with the Bible. But when it comes to secular areas, there's a separation. That, you know, the Bible... You know, there's no point in looking at the Bible. The Bible cannot speak to secular issues, only spiritual issues. But the fact of the matter is, if the Bible is to be true completely and trustworthy completely, it has to be true in all areas. And if the Bible happens to speak to a secular area, it has to be true then also. It can't be true in just one area, spiritual things, sacred things, and not true if it speaks to a secular issue, if it speaks to an area of science. Does the Bible speak to every single area of science? Are there points of intersection everywhere for science and Scripture? No. There, there will not be points of intersection everywhere. But where Scripture does intersect with science, they will be in harmony. They will be true. The Bible will point to the correctness of that or the incorrectness of that Uh, of whatever the hypothesis or theory or law was that science made. Scripture will uphold that. And we would then say, not the other way around. (laughs) Not the other way around. So, Scripture intersects reliably with science. With all things? Are we we saying, let's use the Bible as as a textbook for science? No, that's not what we're saying. But any time an issue does come up where there's an intersection point, Scripture will... Uh, can validate or disprove whatever the science is saying. 
an, ex- an example would be back in the early 1600s. I'll, I'll test my daughter here. William Harvey. Have you heard of William Harvey from the early 1600s? Some, some guy. He was, the, he was the discoverer of the circulatory system in your body, the blood that circulates all through. Uh, he, he's the guy that uh, deve- he, he um, basically was able to learn how our circulatory system works. And at, at that point, if a, person, if a person was sick, they would routinely bleed the person. And I loved this. They would routinely bleed the person to remove their bad humors. Ha ha. Which were falsely thought to be the source of illness, leading to many deaths. So they would bleed the person to get rid of those bad things, bad humors. Well, Scripture clearly states in Leviticus 17.11, the life is in the blood. The life is in the blood. To bleed someone is to take away their life. Scripture was supporting that concept, and yet uh, back in those days, bleeding a patient uh, was considered the way to try to treat someone, and now we know bleeding a patient is poor medicine completely supports Scripture that there, the life is in the blood. In Greek mythology, the, um, the Greeks uh, thought that the earth resided on the shoulders of Atlas. In, uh, for the Hindus, the ancient Hindus, the earth was placed on the back of four ele- elephants, and in turn, these four elephants sat on the back of a turtle who was swimming in a, in a pond of milk. Weird stuff. <laughs> Not what you would call truth with a capital T. But in the book of Job, Job describes the position of the earth as suspended in space. Job 26.7. The earth is suspended in space, which is exactly what it is. Suspended in space. Strip, scripture is true. At points of intersection where science and, and scripture intersect, they are in harmony with each other. So when uh, Scripture does intersect these other disciplines of science, it's trustworthy. Scripture is trustworthy. And as a matter of fact, the Bible's truthfulness really far exceeds that of science. Uh, uh, Over and over and over again we see this. A biblical worldview of science is one that can harmonize with Scripture at all these points of intersection. Um. They will, they will agree. Now, I want to finish up with, uh, with um, three ways in which scientists can approach Scripture. Three ways and three aspects of approaching Scripture if you're a, science, a scientist. One approach would be the no-book approach. Another would be the two-book, and the other would be the one-book. No-book, two-book, one-book. No-book says... The scientist who ascribes to the no-book philosophy completely ignores the contribution of the Bible uh, that the Bible might make to, to science. It says it's, it's wrong, it's irrelevant, it's, uh, uh, this is, and this is the most common view that, that a, science, uh, a scientist would have, um, that the scripture has nothing to do and cannot say anything about, uh, scripture has nothing to do with science. Dr. Jones traces this point of view back to Galileo, the Catholic Church and and the Catholic Church's interaction with Galileo. Because before that time, 
science and the church were closely linked. There wasn't, there wasn't this distrust of one of the other. There was a close relationship between, between uh, Scripture and the church and science. But Galileo took on the point of view that the solar system is heliocentric, that everything revolves around the sun, which is correct. He had the correct viewpoint. That did not set well with the Catholic Church. What did the Catholic Church say? The solar system is not heliocentric, not sun-centered. The solar system is geocentric. The earth is the center. That was the position put forth by Aristotle a couple thousand years before that. And Augustine picked up on the same thing. And so the church said, hey, Aristotle, one of the Greek greats, and then one of our great church fathers, Augustine, says that this is true. Galileo, you're a heretic. The earth is not heliocentric. The solar system is not heliocentric. You're a heretic. And so you immediately have this major shift then between the church and science. Because science finally said, guess what? (laughs) Church, you're wrong. And from that point forward, science has viewed the church as inept and stupid and has nothing to do with science and can never have anything uh, good to say to science at that point forward. The error of the Catholic Church, we are still reaping the rewards of that today in this divide between, uh, between science and the Bible, sadly. The error of the Catholic Church was not rooted in Scripture. They chose, uh, uh, they chose man above Scripture. They chose two men, Aristotle and uh, Augustine, above, above Scripture. And so it's uh, sad that we still have that uh, rift between science and Scripture today. The two-book approach tries to harmonize science and the Bible, which is laudable. To try to, to, to try to bring these two in harmony. The problem is, uh, and I'll cut to the chase here, the problem is, is that if science comes up with a, I'll even say a law, that is, uh, uh, when I say law, I'm saying, well, they've come up with something that they've deemed to be true, then, and the Bible says, no, we don't, and, and Scripture does not agree with that, then the, science, the scientists will too often say that, well, you know, we have to rationalize Scripture somehow then. We have to somehow fit Scripture into, uh, into the mold of science. And that's where we have theistic evolution, where we try to explain evolution uh, somehow and, and say, well, God, God uh, let evolution, uh, God put evolution in place so that things could happen. Uh, the way that we see them today. And there again, you place man above Scripture when you do that, and you try to rationalize that instead of just looking at the situation really, really, really closely and, and, and examine, is Scripture really being interpreted correctly? And is the science being interpreted correctly? Is that, should that really be a law with a capital L, or is it a theory with a, with a small letter T? What is really the truth? And so the two-book uh, two approach uh, can work sometimes, but, uh, but there is that potential for the science to put, uh, to put man's position 
above Scripture, which was the error of the Catholic Church back with Galileo. Well, the one-book approach is that the scientist willingly acknowledges that the Bible is inerrant, infallible, authoritative, and sufficient. It's truth with a capital T. Scripture is elevated to a position of authority and reliability that stands over all areas of science and all areas of human knowledge. Uh, The Bible is the only source of eternal truth with a capital T on earth. Now, are there areas of science that the Bible will not speak to? Certainly. Does the Bible speak to every every area of science? No. Has God promised that he would reveal all the secrets of the physical universe? No, he has not not promised that. He has not promised that he would reveal all of the, the mysteries of science. But wherever scripture and science intersects, at those points of intersection, there will be agreement at those points of intersection. And so that would be the point of view of the one-book theorist, the biblical truth with a capital T. I want to close off by reading a poem from a uh, a fella, André-Marie Ampère, from which we get the term amp, if you're into electricity. Uh, uh, The amp is named after this guy, uh, a scientist from the 1600s. He did a lot of work in electrodynamics, uh, he's one of the biggies in the, the scientific world. And here's what uh, Ampere said about science and uh, scripture in this poem. Happy the one who in his learned watches contemplating the marbles of this vast universe before so much beauty, before so much grandeur, bows the knee and acknowledges the divine creator. I do not share the foolish incoherence of the scientist who would contest the existence of God, who would close his ears to what the heavens declare and refuse to see what shines before his eyes. To know God, to love him, to render him a pure homage, that is true knowledge and the study of the wise. Let's pray. Father, we we thank you for your word. We thank you that we have truth with a capital T. And we've seen over and over and over again that whenever your word intersects with science, it is true. It is true. Thank you for that confidence. Uh, I would ask that we would all uh, use this as as an excuse to study your word even more diligently that when we have conversations with our friends who happen to be scientists, that we can confidently take the one-book approach, that we have confidence in knowing that your word is true all the time. You said it, and that settles it, and we thank you for that. Thank you for saving us through your Son, Jesus Christ. Your word is true, and your word contains those words that Jesus came to earth, a man, led a sinless life. You atoned for our sins. You are resurrected. And enjoy life in heaven right now, which someday we will be too with you. And we thank you for that. 
Thank, for, thank you for your truth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.